purpose of our series is to share some biblical insights and images that we hope will help us find some common ground in a world that has obviously become very polarized in many, many ways. It seems to me that every issue, there's only two options given to us. When we know the world is much more complicated than that. My hope is in this series that with each of the divisions we experience, we'll find a common bond through Christ. And with our love for all people, we as Christians might be able to lead the way in starting a dialogue that helps us to communicate better and find creative solutions to the problems that we face in this world. Last week, we focused on the economic divide, the growing gap between rich and poor. We shared a very interesting biblical concept of gleaning, kind of a creative welfare system that they had for those who farmed were instructed to leave the edge of their fields so that the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan could come and glean that for their food. If they raised grapes or olives, they were to harvest going through once, and whatever was not ripe at that time would later be picked by the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. Well, this week we're going to focus on racial issues. And I hope that we take this to a much deeper level than it has been experienced in the past. I hope that we get more to looking at what is the root causes of racism and just the superficial talk about black lives versus blue lives, kneeling or not kneeling, or arguing over the comments of our politicians and realize that we need to find creative solutions to the problems that sit in our urban areas because that's where most of the problems are arising that we're experiencing today when it comes to race. But to get started, we should probably celebrate because we have come a long way. Some in this room remember the Jim Crow laws just some 50 years ago, especially in the southern states. If you grew up in those areas, then you knew that there was two societies, one for whites and one for blacks. Blacks and whites were not allowed to ride in the same rail cars, eat in the same restaurants, use the same restrooms, or even the same drinking fountains. Blacks were prohibited from experiencing different beaches, swimming pools, even certain hospitals. Tomorrow we're going to celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, someone who, in the way that truly reflected the way of Christ, created a nonviolent movement that pricked the conscience of America to see the problems that existed when racism and prejudice came together in hate and violence. But if you look at our history, you realize we're not quite done. Racism still exists in some very subtle ways and attitudes and some not so subtle ways as we look at the alt-right movement. But racism needs to be more than just an attitude. We need, if we truly care about racism, need to have the desire, the willingness, and the eagerness to learn what it takes to reverse the results of racism that have existed and started with slavery and were compounded for many years thereafter. Someone's described slavery as America's original sin. Many of the problems, the after effects, are caused by how African Americans were treated while they were slaves, and then the many decades that follows, they're kept in their place, denied opportunity, and limited in options. 
just take a look at these statistics that show you how much the problem still is here. African Americans are twice as likely as whites not to finish high school. Minority students are three times as likely as whites to be suspended or expelled from school. 21% of whites complete a college degree, whereas only 13% of blacks. And here's a shocking statistic. I thought this was a typo at first. After completing a four-year degree, whites see a return in wealth of $56,000 and blacks only $4,900. Now, I didn't understand that at first, and then as I read more, I discovered that the reason is that most white families help their students with tuition through college, whereas that's not often the case with minorities. And then afterwards, especially among black families, since they're very family-oriented, they often help their parents who didn't go to college afterwards. And so the net wealth is so much lower. Also look at the infant mortality rate, twice as high for African-Americans than for whites. Life expectancy for whites is 79 years versus only 75 for African-Americans. And here's the most depressing statistic. One in three black males will go to prison at some point in their life versus one through for 17 for whites. My point is if we are if not fully dealt with the impact of racism until we figure out how to provide economic opportunity and quality education within our urban areas to reverse the effects of a system that's 150 years old. There's just more work still to be done. Why should we do so? Because Christians serve an inclusive God, a God who created all people. It starts right there in the Genesis story. And then it's followed up, our scriptures that we read today. Several of the Torah laws reflect that perspective that the Jewish people at one time were slaves in Egypt and therefore there to have a special heart for the immigrant, for the orphan, and for the widow. And then this picture we get from Revelation, which is, which is an image of heaven, and it's telling us in heaven there is not going to be any separation, for we will all from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language will be there to celebrate and sing together in praise of our God. So we should start getting used to that now, don't you think? If it's going to be that way in heaven, why wait? But there's more. Now, the story of Pentecost is one to take note of. How the Holy Spirit came and brought the people together who came from many different places for the Passover feast. And through that miracle of the Holy Spirit, they heard in their own native tongue the good news that was being shared. Now, Israel was not immune to racism. Who were the people that the Jewish people didn't like? The Samaritans, right? The Samaritans. And that goes back a long way. It, it happened when the kingdoms divided after King David and King Solomon became the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And especially because of the way the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, they transplanted Gentiles, causing intermarriage and also the dilution of their, their faith. And so when the remnant came back to the southern kingdom, they looked upon those Samaritans as half-breeds and as people who were had a faith that was blasphemy because it was simply not quite the same faith as theirs. And what did Jesus do to challenge that? For one, he walked through the area of Samaria 
place that most Jews would avoid. They'd, they'd spend an extra day or two walking around it than going through it the shorter way. But Jesus walked through it. It was there that he talked to that woman at the well, discussed theology with her, respected her. And she shared what Jesus had said to her as he told of her life and shared that with her village people. And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, right? And who's the, the hero of that story? It's the Samaritan, the half-breed, the despised. And Jesus does that to challenge the racism of his day. And then we have Paul's great passage from Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. That's just a sampling. God is an inclusive God who calls us to break down the barriers that divide us. Now, my guess is we don't have a lot of racism in this room. We're highly educated people, right? What we do have, and we all have a little, let's be honest, we all have a little prejudice. It's natural, but I imagine most of it's unintentional. We have a desire for all people to experience good things. But the challenge we have, if we're to overcome the problems that I've talked about, if we're to change and reverse the effects of what's happened through slavery and the decades that follow, it's going to take communication. And here's the dilemma that we have. 91% of whites only socialize with other whites in their private lives. 83% of blacks only socialize with other blacks in their private lives. 64% of Latinos only socialize with other Latinos in their private lives. And those percentages are probably just a little better for them because they have to. We have this natural inclination to associate with people who are like us, look like us, live like us, and sound like us. And so the result is we've got highly segregated schools. We've got students who, who often aren't around students from other races. And then we see the problems that we've noticed in some of our major cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, where it's likely that if you're Latino, Hispanic, you go to a school that will not have a single Caucasian there in that school. So how do we overcome it? How many of you have had diversity training at some point at work? And how many of you enjoyed it? Not so much, right? Well, every United Methodist pastor has to go through diversity or inclusiveness training. We do it every four years. And I have to admit, after I get over my resentment of being there, I usually learn a few things, especially the last one, because the last one, she kind of threw the whole agenda aside and just had us share the first time we recall being around somebody different than us. And it was amazing, the stories that were shared. That was rather enlightening, done without a lot of judgment. Well, here's the thing. They're telling us now that diversity training doesn't work. It's been done for 31 years, and things have not gotten any better. And it doesn't for a number of reasons. One is it creates good guys and bad guys. It creates a shame and blame kind of atmosphere. It, it also assumes that there's an equal motivation to be there in the first place. And it assumes somehow that you can appreciate 
diversity when deep down we don't really appreciate it. We avoid the challenge. Reverend Dixon Hall says you can't transform the world if you can't speak the language of the people with whom you share. And she suggests a better approach is what's called cultural intelligence. And she defines cultural intelligence as the ability to function, communicate, and manage effectively in complex and changing cultural contexts, which means you need this skill for lots of areas. I mean, how many of you have children or grandchildren sometimes you can't communicate with? Yeah, we, we need to cross that cultural divide in many areas. We also need to, when we talk to somebody who has a different political perspective, or you talk to somebody who watches a different news source than you typically talk, no, watch. So there is that to be negotiated, but it's especially important when we're facing the racial divisions that we experience or facing the social economic differences that we experience as well. She gives a great analogy that might give us a better motivation to want to try to understand people from a different culture and people of a different race. She says, how many of you have gone to another country? So how many of you have gone to another country? And before you went, did you take some time to study the place you are going to? You might have bought a book, got extra maps out, got on the Internet and researched the best places to go. You might have studied some of the, the local customs to make sure that you don't say something offensive or learn certain things that you do touch or don't touch or certain signs that you make. And she suggests we need to bring this attitude to the racial and ideological differences that we have. That we need to realize we're going to a different culture, a whole different place. And our motivation should be that it's to our advantage. That we live in a more complex, multi-ethnic world all the time. And the better versed we are to understand the language of the people we're trying to work with, and as Christians, if we hope to make a dent in racism in our world, then the places we seek to transform, we need to understand the language as well. well I think that's a pretty great analogy. It's the approach that we need as we face the racial differences we experience in this country. We're relating to people who have experienced the world differently from us. And we would do well not to judge them. We've not lived where they lived. We do not understand the challenges they had faced. And so we need to come humbly to the table, realizing we're not superior, but we are different. It's what we call learning how to do ministry with instead of doing ministry for. So for the rest of our message today, I'd like to call Norm Williams up and let him provide our cultural intelligence for today. Norm is one of our members, and uh, he spoke to our elderberries group a while back. Can we turn it on? Pull these chairs up here. And he did such a great job explaining what it was like for him growing up on the northeast side of Indianapolis and uh, sharing a perspective uh, in a very comfortable way for all that came that I thought it'd be great for him to share that with us as well. So, Norm, tell us a little bit about your background, your family growing up, and what you experienced there. Sure. I grew up in the Meridian Kessler area. Um, for elementary school, I went through IPS. Um, and then high school, 
I went to Brabaf over on uh, 86 and Ditch, and then University of Dayton. So um, when you talk about the, the schools, I've went to predominantly black schools growing up and then predominantly white schools growing up. So it was a little bit of both. Um, and then I, you know, my family was always involved. My grandparents were marked with Dr. King and very involved in Indianapolis and civil rights movement. My mother was a pastor, so I've always kind of been, you know, conscious of a lot of different things. But I, I had a lot of different experiences growing up being that I was matriculated in a lot of different areas. So. Can you share where you experienced racism growing up? Um, sure. I, um, a couple things jump out. When I was 15 years old um, at Brebuff, I think it was a, after a football game or a dance or something, me and two of my friends decided to go over to a restaurant. I, I think one of my friends liked a girl over there, and she ha didn't happen to be there. But as we left, a car alarm went off, and a quarter mile down the road at a Burger King, we were pulled over by five police officers, um, lights blaring, guns drawn, get out of the car. Um, we were made to lay on the ground, hands behind our back, uh, taken downtown to the juvenile center where we were, um, before we were accused of grand theft auto because one of the police officers that saw us with a hammer and chisel found out that, uh, came to light that that didn't happen. Uh, we actually received a, an apology from the police department. Um, and then a few years later when I was at Dayton, similar incident happened. I had um, two of my friends and I were, one of my friends was, a, his mother was a law professor at Dayton. We were in an area similar to Carmel Fishers. Um, we got pulled over, again, three or four police officers guns drawn um, because we didn't look like we belonged in the area. Um, the interesting thing is most of the most of my friends who are African-American males my age have had similar experiences, but this is, you know, kind of what, what my experiences have been. Something we don't typically experience. Right. Uh, when you talk to the elderberries, you mentioned that most Caucasians, we don't think about our color of skin. We don't think about our racial background, whereas that's something you have to think about every single day. Yeah, I think I think two two instances. I think the first is when when you looked even at the um, the slide you showed showed you know in private lives you know, how people tend to, to stick together in, in communities that are similar. The interesting thing in, in the public lives you can't really do that. Um, last week, the last seven days, as I was thinking about it, I th on one of the seven days that I went to work, I think is the only day I saw someone who looked like me. Every other day, I, I don't think I saw another African American. Um, as, and my wife and I talk a lot about race, and, and I think. You know, as, as Caucasians, when you, you go to work, you don't think about that. You don't, but if you think about a, a, a week where you could go and not seeing anyone like you, that's not an anomaly to me. Um, the same thing growing up, you know, where it was being in class, um, no matter what it was, I could go periods of time without seeing anyone who looked like me. So those are just things I think about. And also just with my experiences, again, with Everbuff and as, at, at Dayton, whether I'm driving through Carmel or I'm going through a store, I re those are things that I think about. We've got a good... Um, the Friends of ours who are a couple who, they're from northern Indiana, and I'm pretty sure that I'm the first African-American that she's ever really spent time with. So I'm also aware as, as when I'm out in the world and talking to people that unless they've seen something on TV, a lot of time I'm the only interaction that they've had with someone of color. And so I'm aware of that as I go out and, and, and just live my life. Okay. Anything else you'd like to share with us? Um, I think the big thing, and we talked about this at the Elderberries, is, you know, a lot of times they say, you know, when you're in public, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about taxes, uh, or race, actually. But um, I think that's part of the problem. I think we need to talk about race. I think a lot of times, you know, white people don't want to bring up race because you don't want to be called a racist. And, you know, black people don't want to talk about race because you don't want to be the angry black guy in the room. But I think because of that, there's a lot of conversations that don't happen. I think when we look at it, you know, the scope of where we are, the reality of it is Dr. King's speech was in 1963. 
I was born in 1972, so that's not a big, we're, we're not that far away. Brown versus Board of Education was in 1960, we're 50 years away from that. So there's a lot of things that are still there. You know, I think a lot of times for African Americans, we, we try to have conversations and we're told, you know, get over slavery, get over this, get over that. Well, the reality of it is, you know, we're, we're not that far away from it. We're not that far away from Jim Crow. Um, when I was growing up, busing was still in Indianapolis. So I think having those conversations and understanding where someone's coming from gives us a lot more, you know, opportunity to, to get along. We don't have to agree, but at least when things happen in the communities, if we have those conversations and, and aren't afraid to have those conversations, not afraid to be called a racist, not afraid to, to express your opinion, then at least we'll have an understanding and maybe be able to get along a little bit better. Very good. Thank you very much. Let's have a prayer. Lord, we lift up the racial conversations that still need to take place. We pray right now for the immigration debate that's taking place in, in Washington. We hope that compromise can be found, solutions can be creative, and that your people will be cared for. Bless each of us in this community as we try to look forward to whatever may happen. May we celebrate well tomorrow evening as we thank you for what you did through one of your servants, but also to continue the work that was started. Thank you for your presence always, your grace that takes us as we are. Through Christ we do pray. Amen.